You're listening to Done By Law. Brought to you by the Federation of Community Legal Centres. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Done By Law here at 3CR. It's Tuesday the 6th of February. Um, This evening, we've got Annie, Nadia and Sarah in the studio. Hi. Oh, sorry. Hello. (laughs) I'm not talking to you today. And we're we're joined by Molly Williams, Senior Lawyer at the West Heidelberg Legal Service. Hi, Molly. Thanks Uh, for... In the Melbourne Community Legal. Thanks for having me. Oh, I I (laughs) apologise. Oh, good. But we've also got Stephanie Price, um, Principal Lawyer at the West Heidelberg Legal Service, and she'll be joining us on the phone because she's got a little baby to be caring for this evening. So we are going to be speaking to Molly and Stephanie about the government's public housing renewal program. So that'll be a little bit later in the show after news in brief. So, speaking of news in brief, we've got a few things on today. I was hoping to kick us off with the what we might call the Cops in Schools program, and I'm baiting Annie with this one because it's an area of great interest to her. No comment. I'll do, well, <laughs> you, you will comment in just a sec, I'm pretty sure. Um, So basically what's happening is uh, opposition leader Matthew Guy announced uh, yesterday that if elected, he would restore the police in schools program. What that means is that full-time police officers would be embedded in 10 Victorian high schools as part of the state opposition plan to combat a violent scourge of youth crime. It's a $50 million initiative which would run over four years. Um, and it's going to be uh, placed in areas that have specific youth needs or at-risk challenges. So I think we can read between the lines there. Mr Guy said, uh, this program is about developing respect for our police early on. Uh, The coalition said it would work with the police to choose the 10 at-risk schools and the chief commissioner would decide whether the police officers carried guns. Oh, Um, hmm. Yeah, that was a nice tidbit. Uh, When asked if the schools would become stigmatised, Mr Guy said, I hope not. Um, Well, let's trust in that. Interestingly, Victoria is the only state that does not have a police in schools program, but I'm not sure of the exact details of the other states. That that kind of shocks me too. It could be be different levels of um, police in schools. Um, Now, my question for you, Annie Davis. Oh, gosh. is, Is there a place for police to work with children? And if so, what would that look like? Oh, um, well, with News and Brief, we do just try to impartially talk about news items that have come up. Um, But look, I mean, there's all sorts of different ways that police can be in schools. In Victoria, we've seen a number of different um, ways that that's happened. We've got youth resource officers um, around the state. And I think each region is a bit different in how they deploy them. Um, But some of them will go into schools and do um, talks, for example, Um, but, yeah, interestingly, that program, well, I think the more intensive stuff work that police did with schools uh, came to an end or was discontinued at some point in the mid-2000s, so it's not real clear why that was. Um, yeah, all I would say is that, yeah, there has to be real questions around, um, I think a common refrain of people who work in youth crime is that you might notice there's a big difference in private schools and public school kids, for example, if there's a schoolyard fight more commonly, private schools tend to not call the police and try to deal with it within the school. Um, public schools, however, 
um, I'm not sure if this is a protocol or just a general culture, they, they will call police in, you know, not to comment on the rights or wrongs of that, but you'll see the kids doing the same thing private school versus public school yeah. one will go through the court system and have a criminal yeah, well, record the other it, won't I think it's totally discriminatory in that yeah. sense it's yeah. like people who live on the streets and are more likely to be you know fined for public order offences if you've got police in schools you're more likely to be yeah. you're more mm. at risk of being charged with yeah. a criminal offence I think you make a really good point Annie. and mm. the, the police accountability project which runs out of Flemington commit Kensington Community Legal Centre has already commented on this and said that the proposal is flawed, outdated and would create a schools-to-prison pipeline. Also noted um, that a white kid in queue might have his parents called or might be talked to by the teacher. A young African kid in western suburbs will more likely have the police respond. So I think mm-hmm. that's yeah. definitely the concern. And I just think we'd to see the evidence on do these programs work and if they do, then in what format? Because, for example, you know, it's sort of well known now, but the scared straight kind of programs that they had in the US yeah. have found to be a resounding failure mm-hmm. as well. So, you know, if, if they are going to implement something like this, where's the evidence that it works really? And, and certainly the $50 million might be better spent in restorative justice or um, more funds for youth diversion or a whole lot of Absolutely. other proven um, methods. And at the risk of sounding um, self-interested, perhaps lawyers in school or working in conjunction with, with police. And as you've already said, Annie, some of those initiatives um, yeah. already exist. And I know that we, we've both been involved in those in doing um, some preventative legal education. Um, yeah, and I was reading this great um, transcript you know, from the settlement outcomes inquiry um, that was headed up by Jason Wood, I think, and there was some great evidence given by the Les Twentyman Foundation who had a youth worker working in schools who was from Sudanese background and um, by all accounts that program was working fantastically and they were pushing to have you know youth workers available in all these, these schools. So you'd think that might be... And Money I think that, that does go to but, you know a good point. Mm. Do the skill? Do the police have the right skill set for the needs of these students, mm. or perhaps does it have to be a more of a multidisciplinary team? Perhaps we shall see come election time. Mm. I suppose that's right. When you see election, there's a lot of law and order stuff going on. November. Wow, we've got a long oh, way to go. Another <laughs> ten months of this. We do great. <laughs> a lot more news in briefs coming up. I think. Have we got something else? Uh, I had a uh, joke slash trash uh, news item. Uh, there's um, police have built a case against a pair over an alleged Lego lifting spree. This is in yesterday's Oh, a pair is in a, a jewel, not a P-E-A-R. Yeah, it's a Bonnie and Clyde of Lego thefts by the look. Um, it's uh, saying that they the couple were woken up by police at 2am as they raided the house looking for uh, Lego. Um, I think, how much Lego was it? Uh, enough <laughs> for police to stage some sort of raid. Um, it doesn't look as though they have damaged the, the Lego, so they're not kind of building their own Lego land. Um, they were released on bail and will appear in court later this month. Uh, I hope someone gets to the bottom of this. Molly, you're a parent. Yeah. What's your Lego expensive. Yeah. It's like a black market Lego. Look, it is expensive. And I, I guess there's also, no offence to nerds, but a lot of collectors out there that um, have mm. a particular penchant for um, mm. sought-after uh, uh, sought Lego. But as a parent, the perils of standing on Lego um, outweigh the benefits mm. of mm. heisting it from any uh, stores. I saw a while ago they developed some special Lego slippers for beleaguered parents to wear around the Lego that mm. protects your feet. <laughs> From what Molly says, it sounds well, like a good idea. Sounds like I must in, have in product. Demand. Mm. All right. Um, have we got time for one more? I Go think, on. I think we do. All right. 
So, ASIO has taken custody of secret cabinet documents uh, obtained by the ABC. I love this story. So, well, it, interestingly, this story seems to have been a little bit of a storm in a teacup because it was very exciting and yet it's really just died down. There hasn't been, you know, much of a – doesn't seem to have been – much of an expose on the whole thing. It's just... Um, I love how it was actually cabinet documents in a cabinet, in yeah. a poppy in Canberra. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Mm. So basically the... Utopia is going to go wild. A whole... <laughs> whole episode. I think well, Malcolm Turnbull said if it was in Utopia, it would be too unbelievable as a plot line. But <laughs> That's true. Mm. That is very true. So a whole cache of documents was found in a locked filing cabinet sold at an auction of ex-government furniture in Canberra. Um... So the ABC and the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet have now reached an agreement on the return of the documents. Uh, Officers from ASIO went to retrieve the papers. Um, So the Cabinet Files is one of the biggest breaches of Cabinet security in Australian history. Um, Some of the revelations included that the Abbott government considered banning anyone under the age of 30 from receiving unemployment benefits. That doesn't really stretch the imagination, does it? Um, The then Immigration Minister Scott Morrison agreed to inquire about slowing ASIO security checks for asylum seekers, potentially affecting what visas they could receive, and that the Howard government gave serious consideration to removing an individual's unfettered right to remain silent when questioned by police. That's one for all the criminal lawyers among us. Um, So... Uh, Independent MP Andrew Wilkie has said that it's not good enough that the department that might be responsible for the blunder is now investigating itself. Uh, And he said that it sends a signal to our intelligence partners and allies that Australia might not be trustworthy when it comes to sharing information and intelligence. I quite liked this. Labor frontbencher Chris Bowen described the circumstances as comic but yet unbelievably serious. So I think we can all agree that there's an element of comedy there. Interestingly, Helen Razor wrote in the Daily Review yesterday that um, some of the claims, um, we just don't know whether they're true or not because the ABC has chosen not to... um, not to publish the documents in their entirety, entirety. So she's basically questioning why they didn't go down down um, the road of the New York Times in its handling of the Chelsea Manning material, which was to give the US State Department no choice but to advise on redacting names and details that could imperil national security or the safety of individuals. So her argument seems to be that there didn't seem to be that much actually of um, national security concern in there when you look at the kind of headline pieces and that um, the ABC should have gone harder and said we're publishing, you can redact and that's all we're giving to you. Instead they um, handed it all over. So Helen thinks they've rolled over. What do you guys think? Gosh, it's... <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree, controversially. Look, you know, broadly I believe in open government and accountability. Having said that, there are obviously reasons or, or policies and around why these documents aren't in the public domain mm. in the first instance and why you have to wait 30 years. There must be significant reasons for that. Mm. So I don't think you can take a decision about releasing them lightly. Mm. Um, and you'd also figure that the ABC is in a bit of a hard position as absolutely. a national broadcaster yep. dependent mm. on a government for funding that isn't a big fan of theirs. Yeah. Um, and I wonder if it hadn't been the ABC whether we would have had a totally different yeah. result. would have been quite mm. interesting. But, yeah, that's all kind of 
died down a little bit. Have we got anything else? No, I think we, we better think move we better on to. We might go to a song. All right, let's have a short one. Archie Roach took the children away. Welcome back to Done by Law. In 2017, the Andrews government announced that a number of public housing estates are to be demolished and sold off to private developers for redevelopment. Tonight, we talk to Stephanie Price from West Heidelberg Community Legal Service and Molly Williams from Inner Melbourne Community Legal to find out about whether the renewal project stacks up against the government's rhetoric. In the midst of a housing unaffordability crisis, with tens of thousands of people on the public housing waiting list, we ask, should we be selling off public land? Hi there, Steph. Hi, how are you going? Good, nice to have you on the show. Thanks for coming in. Or well, not for coming in, for joining no us on the, on the phone. No um, we'd like to get started, perhaps by getting a sense of what the estates are like now uh, before we talk about the actual proposed changes. From what you know and from what you've seen, Molly, what are we talking about? What's at stake here? Well, I mean, I'll just jump in there. I mean, I, I, I think that there's, um, you know, all the estates are quite different. So the, the government sort of targeted an initial batch of estates across the inner city and some inner suburban areas. Um, that are in, you know, I think quite varying um, physical conditions. So some are in um, worse conditions than others. Um, some, I think, you know, tenants in them would certainly have the position that, you know, they'd like something, um, you know, done in terms of um, remedying the condition of the premises. Some um, certainly tenants report that they're, um, you know, very happy with the um, condition of the property. Some of them have been recently um, significantly refurbished. So the Clifton Hill Estate, is one estate that within the last five or six years um, was completely refurbished, um, the tenants say. So, Steph, where, where are they? You mentioned Clifton Hill. Where else are these estates? So there's Clifton Hill. There's um, West Heidelberg um, has two estates, which are um, proposedly part of the plan. Um, there's North Melbourne. There is Ascot Vale. There's Brighton. There's Hawthorne. Um, and there's Northgate. So prime real estate, really, isn't it? Yeah, yep, some, you know, ideal commercial locations for large-scale private development. So what do we know about the decision um, thus far? How did it come about and where are we at with it? Well, I mean, what what we know about um, where it's at is that it's, you know, progressing quickly. The government, you know, appears very keen to um, have as much stitched up as they can before the state election this year. Um, you know, the motivation for the, the plan... I think is really, you know, a question that you'd have to ask government. Certainly, you know, the need to perhaps um, spend some money on housing um, repair and housing construction on a mass scale has been a pressing need in Victoria, as other states for many, many decades. So, you know, considering why now, um, I think it's really a question for government. And when you look at some of the people who, or the organisations and sort of interests that perhaps stand to benefit from the proposal, so, you know, developers... Um, I think, you know, that ha might have something to do with, you know, so why now. what stage are we actually at? Is it a done deal? Well, I mean, I think, you know, nothing's a done deal really until until the buildings are knocked over and um, something else is um, put in place. As far as we know, uh, you know, the government is, is um, steadfastly going through the planning processes. They're at the stage of sort of asking various developers to submit, you know, possible tenders, so, you know, ideas and plans for what they do on the estate. I think they really want to, you know, select developers by, uh, I think, the middle of the year is their timeline. 
uh, and have contracts signed really, and, you know, before the caretaker yeah. period. And what are the terms like for the sell-off? I mean, that's all, you know, that's all sort of, you know, high secrecy. So we nobody really knows, um, you know, except the government and the developers. So that's one of the issues, certainly, that the, you know, community legal sector has, which is the government saying this is a great deal for Victoria, it's a great deal for public tenants, um, but nobody really knows, you know, what the deal is. One thing I've read actually that you wrote is that um, the demolition is going to, the cost of the development is going to be borne by the government in this instance. Yeah, so the the government, in the documents that the government's given out, sort of, you know, inviting tenders, it indicates the government will bear the cost of of the relocation, so relocating all the tenants, which, uh, you know, is a significant cost, finding uh, additional housing for all these people in, in a, you know, in a housing crisis. So the government will bear those costs and then it will pay the cost of, you know, demolishing and essentially the developers will be presented with, you know, large swathes of, uh, uh, you know, green land to do what they will on. So they stand to, to gain a lot of profit out of this? Yeah, well, one would expect that's why they're involved. And um, in terms of external assessments, has anything been undertaken to evaluate the proposal? Well, not, not as far as we know. So, you know, there are, um, you know, many dozens of public housing estates across Melbourne uh, the sort of question as to why these estates have been picked um, as needing redevelopment much more than anything any others, um, you know, is unclear. So certainly, you know, we would say it would be sensible that if your position is that these are the estates that are most in need of repair and this is the best way to do it, you'd have, you know, a whole bunch of evidence which can, you know, verify that and back that up. Um, and that's certainly not the case. And, you know, I think... It's not unreasonable to say that in all likelihood these estates have been selected for their sort of, um, you know, their appropriate uh, private development site. So likely it's just going to make the most profit for those involved. And certainly we saw that in Carlton in recent years um, in similar um, fashion, a redevelopment of um, low-rise estates and, um, and the modelling out of that suggests that the developers have made a $300 million profit and the estate now um, has a wall through it, um, separating the private um, dwellings from the public housing. So, um, you know, as a sector, I guess we're wondering what lessons have been learned from that ex- experiment and um, how they're going to do things differently this time. Molly, um, thanks for chiming in. Perhaps we'll just turn to you for a moment. So what are the residents' rights and options? I know that at Inner Melbourne Community Legal, you've been going down to the Abbotsford Street Estate to fill in a few information gaps for residents. Yeah, so responding to, um, I guess, lots of questions and anxiety that we were hearing coming out of the estate, um, also from a local resident um, group that got, you know, got us um, involved. We ran a pop-up clinic in January just to try and um, try and um, bridge a bit of that information gap that residents were feeling. Um, there was a lot of misinformation floating around and a lot of anxiety. Um, so we're continuing to assist residents um, and that will be an ongoing process over the coming months, no doubt. In terms of their rights, um, you know, it's a very difficult situation for residents. The government has pledged that anyone who wants to return to a redeveloped estate has a right to do that. Um, but, of course... Uh, it, it really depends on the shape and form that the new um, uh, the new redeveloped estate will take, um, and given that that's not known yet because the developers the, the contracts haven't been signed and the plans haven't been settled, um, there is anxiety, particularly um, un- among uh, families. Um, the and, and both on our estate and other estates, uh, it's, it seems that uh, 
majority of three bedroom dwellings and above won't be rebuilt so um, you may you may end up with people that have have children and families not having the option of returning to the estate despite a pledge from the minister that people will have that right and what other questions have residents had a lot of it centers around that right of return and and knowing if that's an option and I guess also around the time frames so Residents in North Melbourne were originally told that they, you know, would need to be out kind of around January, and then you know, it's that's a shift that um, time frame has shifted to July. So there's a lot of uncertainty about that, and also a lot of anxiety about where people will go in the meantime. This could be, you know, a multi-year um, proposition for people um, moving out of the estate, and everyone wants to stay in their local community. People have attachments there, they they um, access health services, they access community services, their kids go to schools there, and that's really a, a massive point of concern for some people that have lived there for, in some cases, 30 years, 40 years. So these are people's homes, and they also have a sense of community within the estate itself, people that um, rely on their neighbours, um, that they're, they're, they're like family, they help people um, stay in their homes um, when they're, they're older, they check in on each other, they look out for each other. So... There's a real anxiety about um, communities being separated in that sense and and everyone knows what demand there is on public housing more generally, but specifically, you know, in these um, inner-city estates, um, there's great demand for public housing and so whether people will be resettled elsewhere, whether they'll have to leave their neighbourhoods um, and all those connections is really still up in the air. Is there a plan for resettlement at the moment, uh, something transitional while the... So um, the de- department have pledged that, um, that you know they will assist find appropriate um, alternative housing for people, and whether that's temporary housing um, during the project um, or permanent housing if people don't wish to move back. Um, but that that could take many forms, um, mm. and that's every individual in every estate. So if you think there's thousands of people affected um, that that need to have their needs met, um, and everyone has their own specific circumstances and attachments to the neighbourhood and things they need to be close by to. So mm. it could be that people are moved to more other public housing. It could be that they're moved to community housing or into private rental, um, paid for and leased, head leased by the department. Mm. And perhaps, Stephanie, we'll, we'll turn back to you and ask, um, we've heard about some of the concerns that the residents have had and some of their uncertainties. What about from the perspective of advocacy groups? What are some of the issues and concerns that you've identified? Well, uh, yeah, following on from the sort of um, nuts and bolts of what sort of Molly has indicated, the concerns that people really have on the estates are, are the concerns that are shared by the advocacy groups. And in particular, you know, the question of, where people are going now, there's, there's a lot of question around that. But then really, yeah, what are they transitioning back to? So, you know, the government is sort of making much of its pledge that um, people will be able to return. Um, but when you sort of look into it in any sort of level of detail, um, that pledge, you know, it does appear to weaken. Um, it seems quite unlikely that um, any of the redeveloped estates will include, as Molly said, houses that are appropriate for families. And many of these estates... Um, you know, house many, many dozens of families at the moment and they certainly are going to struggle to come back onto any, uh, you know, redeveloped estate. So we've got big concerns about uh, the makeup of the estates, you know, the real sort of denuding of these um, vibrant communities uh, and, you know, reshaping them into something quite different um, when you're sort of telling people who are living there currently that they certainly uh, will be able to return. And then the other question related to what they'll be coming back to is, 
uh, you know, will it be public housing? And that's certainly not a question that the government can answer with any certainty at the moment. That's, so, a re- that's an you know, interesting a lot of the house. Yeah, Steph, could you describe the difference between um, community housing and public housing? Because I understand that a lot of residents aren't really sure about what that difference is and it hasn't been explained to them. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the real sort of nub of the issue for, for tenants, I think. But before you get to that, I think it's also worth always recognising that after the redevelopment, most housing on these estates will be private housing. So when you talk about these estates after the redevelopment, you're overwhelmingly talking about large-scale private apartment complexes. And then within that, you'll have a minority of housing that's you know, broadly termed social housing, um, and it's likely that that will be you know, what, what's termed community housing, which is a form of social housing that's uh, you know, different to public housing in that obviously the government doesn't uh, you know, manage the property. So uh, you know, a range of rights and entitlements that apply to public housing tenants don't necessarily apply to community housing tenants. Um, you know, things around, uh, you know, the, the department's rights and obligations to, um, you know, ensure that tenants uh, have appropriate disability modifications, that if they have to leave their premises for, you know, family violence or for, uh, you know, stays in prison, that their rent is appropriately reduced and their property uh, remains there for them. Various things around the tendency to, you know, serve notices to vacate. Uh, we find in our experience that uh, there's more of a tendency to serve notices to vacate uh, and take tenants to VCAT in community housing uh, than there is in public housing. So, you know, some really key issues that, that, you know, that we say define how secure a tenant's housing in, a lot of those things, that, you know, are quite different in, uh, in community housing. Thanks, Steph. And one thing that's been really clear to me in all of this is the ability for community legal centres to respond really quickly to this kind of need. So as a sector, what what is um, going to happen going forward? Is there a plan? So certainly as a sector, we're working really closely together, um, centres um, in areas that are affected, as well as um, Justice Connect Homeless Law and Tenants Victoria. Um, through the Federation uh, to both provide on-the-ground legal assistance to residents and um, and also to advocate as a sector um, with government and um, and also feeding back to housing when, we, when we're having examples of them not following their policies and them not um, adhering to model litigants guidelines and a lot of the other um, checks and balances on how they're meant to um, to deal with these sorts of matters. So um, the sector's working on it together and that, that um, takes a couple of, you know, different forms. But it's, it's going to be a long, um, a long road ahead over the next months, I think, to, to both advocate for individual clients and, and um, to advocate with government. And I suppose that's quite a considerable burden for community legal centres and it's on top of our already high workloads. It's certainly nothing that we're funded to do specifically, but we're absorbing that need. Certainly, but I think that's you know some of the benefit of being a community legal centre that you can be really um, responsive to those needs as they as they come up in your community and and step up and kind of adjust your service model to make sure that um, that you're doing as what you can to assist vulnerable people. We've rap- rapidly come to the end of the show, so we're going to have to wind up. But thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks. very much. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.